Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you, and we just ask that you would be with us today, that uh, you would open our hearts and help us understand your word, understand what you have to teach us in the rich field of your Sermon on the Mount. Father, we give praise to you and ask that you'd uh, give us open hearts and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A uh, couple of months ago, uh, I started on a series on the sermon, and that was tempered by a series we did about three years ago on the Beatitudes. And rather than repeating all those messages uh, or skipping them all on the Beatitudes, I'm going to try to summarize a few for a few messages so we can get through them a little bit more quickly. And uh, last time we talked about the beginning of the sermon and how when Jesus saw the multitudes, He saw them with compassion as we should see the lost. Uh, we talked about how what it means to be poor in spirit. In other words, you and I are spiritually impoverished. We can do nothing on our own to earn salvation. We are essentially beggars in God's presence. And we learned what it means to mourn. That strange saying, blessed are those who mourn. Doesn't sound logical, but the necessity of mourning over our sin. Today, we're going to go on with the next three Beatitudes. And we start today with the first one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the qualities of the Beatitudes apply to everyone, male and female. However, uh, meekness is something that guys tend to struggle with. Not that women shouldn't be meek, but uh, we, we have a problem with meekness as the male of the, uh, of the species. And uh, so I'm, some of my comments in this message will be more focused on, on men. The world says, of course, that nice guys, meek guys, in their view, finish last. Uh, and in the modern English, the word meek conjures up notions of passive, weak, uh, wimp. Uh, and to be sure, meekness is not a concept that most men of the world seek after today. Uh, words have a way of changing in their connotation over time, the way that people use them. Uh, and so the question is not what we think of the word meek today, but what did the biblical writers intend by that word? And the Greek word for meek is praus. It does mean humble gentle, patient, but possessing self-control to resist reaction when threatened. Uh, the attitude of this kind of a person is strong self-control. But it goes beyond that. Biblical meekness is in reality power under God's control. It's sometimes referred to in some versions as gentle strength. Our sin nature, on the other hand, leads us to stubborn, willful, carnal rebellion and defensive reaction to protect our dignity, our pride. Right, guys? Sometimes that's what we do. A close synonym for the word meek is gentle. Again, not a word you hear in most beer commercials. And that's 
where we get the term gentleman. The concept of a gentleman, and a lady frankly, has lost much of its classical meaning today. Uh, that, the term, uh, that term as used in the phrase gentleman's club is anything but that. That's a true oxymoron. Okay? Uh, the words ladies and gentlemen actually mean much more than one who is older than an adolescent. Paul tells us that there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. He's not saying by that statement that there's no difference between the two. Just that He loves us, He uses us, and He draws us equally. But this is huge in our culture. Some men make themselves, who have become more self-centered, manifest that by becoming brutish with machismo, while others become more feminine and whiny. And then there's that strange combination of both. I haven't quite figured out. Uh, Sadly, we see this confusion in some women as well. And as we evolve socially toward a more self-serving, licentious, rights-demanding culture, we've lost the concept of ladylike and gentlemanly deportment that was so common just 50 and 60 years ago. You know, those terms mean so much more than you can imagine. It means, for, for guys, it means much more than you know, standing when a woman or an elderly person enters the room, or holding the door open for women and children, or holding a seat for uh, a woman, or helping her seat herself. Uh, uh, Being polite, or as my wife reminded me this morning, warming up the car. Uh, It means a lot of things. It is a way or an approach towards life. How do we distinguish a true gentleman from a mere natural man. The Bible tells us that the contrast is stark. Galatians 5, starting in verse 9, tells us that the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sound familiar? Pretty descriptive of some of our culture. However, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Think about that. That phrase always intrigues me. I think what Paul is saying here is no matter how much your, your adversary opposes you and your ideas, he will never criticize you, he will never disrespect you, he's, he's never going to pass a law to stop the fruits of the Spirit. That's one area where we're safe to practice. But how do we acquire this meekness or become a true gentleman? Meekness or gentility is best achieved by knowing and applying God's wisdom in response, in both our words and our actions, to difficulties. Uh, In order to respond in wisdom, we've got to be well acquainted with God's wisdom. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, you all know what we have to do. 
You've heard it up here many times. So we've got to read your Bible. You've got to understand how it applies in our lives. That's our task. That's how we can become meek, how we, how we can learn to become meek. Christ himself described himself as a gentleman. In Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and ever laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So when we take on the yoke of Christ, we yield our rights to do what we please, and we learn the wishes of Christ, our leader. If Christians take on a yoke other than Christ, it's kind of like, you know, you've seen those old wooden yokes that span two animals, and when you put an ox and a donkey together, they go at different rates, they're independent, they don't, one doesn't follow the other's lead, and they rub each other raw in the process. We don't want to be yoked like that. Our quest for being ladies and gentlemen comes down to being yoked to knowing and following Christ. A uh, little example, I used this three years ago, and I, it's just a great one. Uh, in uh, the state of Iowa, it's an enigma. I can't understand. There's got to be lots of conservative farmers up there, you know. But uh, their Supreme Court mandated gay marriage uh, a few years ago. And in their uh, high schools, uh, they decided to put an equal sign between boy and girl wrestlers. Okay? Now, uh, I wrestled in high school, and I can tell you that the purpose of wrestling is to slam your opponent's body into the mat with the force of your body to pin them. And in the process, you are to use your chin to thrust into their chest to get their shoulder blades on the mat. There is no part of the body that escapes contortion, handling, grasping, and violent force. Okay? That's just what wrestling is. Right, Kenny? All right. It's a great sport. Nobody ever watches it, but it's a great sport. <laughs> All right. Well, a young man named Joel Northrup made it to the state wrestling tournament, which in Iowa is a big deal. In Iowa, wrestling is what football is in Nebraska and basketball is in Kansas. It's huge up there. However, he was matched against one of the first young women to ever make the state tournament in its 85-year history. In a brief statement issued through his school, Northup expressed his respect for his female opponent. He said, however, wrestling is a combat sport, and it can get violent at times. As a matter of conscience and my faith, I do not believe it is appropriate for a boy to engage a girl in this manner. Joel, therefore, forfeited his right to compete for the state championship and in the process proved himself a real man. In fact, a gentleman. Even more significant examples are those who go off to foreign lands, fight and die for the love of family and country. Now, family and country are great, but they're temporal. If people are willing to die for temporal things, 
what should we be willing to do for the one who died for us to give us eternal life? In fact, you might say, you might paraphrase this verse to say, blessed are the meek for they shall die. Sounds encouraging, doesn't it? In John 12, Jesus said, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Well, so what? Well, the farmers out here understand that a kernel of wheat, when planted, buried in the soil, actually has to die. The, the outer part, the husk, has to fall off so that the wheat germ in the middle can interact with the soil and the moisture of the oxygen and produce more wheat. As believers, we are called to be Christ-like ladies and gentlemen and to live under God's control through that death. Death is necessary for both wheat and for, for meekness. Paul explained in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But for the Christ in me to bear the fruit of meekness, I've got to die to self daily. I've got to stop focusing on what I want, and my rights, and my importance, and start seeking God's best and His purpose in all areas of life that He's given me. So, our best example is Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who became a sacrificial lamb of God and yielded his rights to several things. To a good reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant to be mocked and scorned. He gave up his right to, be, to serve as his own master. He washed the feet of his disciples. He gave up his rights to, be, to physical comfort. Uh, he had no place to lay his head. He gave up his rights to make his own decisions. He said, not my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So what do we do? He says, he tells us in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So as believers, we're, we're called to live our lives in power under God's control. And that's a very different view of meekness than the world has. Let's move on. The next one says, Blessed are those who th hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This teaching explains the passion that Jesus intended in our quest for righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a rather famous 20th century preacher in the British evangelical movement, and he said this, This beatitude, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, again follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. It is the logical conclusion to which they come, and it is sometimes, and it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. However, if it is not, you had better 
examine the foundations again. If you're not serious about hungering and thirsting, you might want to check your status. In this one short verse of Scripture, we have incredible hope. However, satisfaction is available only through Christ. You know, we all have a sense of hunger and thirst, but probably not as much as those of third world citizens who daily have to wake up and satisfy hunger and thirst. Let's take a look at what Jesus was trying to convey by these two words. The words hunger and thirst mean exactly what they think, what we think they mean in, in the original. Uh, they are God-given impulses, and when stirred, they motivate, they motivate us out of, uh, out of, to seek out excuse me, an essential need in life. Uh, used metaphorically as they are here, they express seeking an eager and compelling desire, uh, an ardent cra- craving, a profound sense of need. Now, everybody hungers and thirsts. For the unsaved man, metaphorically, they hunger after other things. Uh, n- not, not, not necessarily of God, but of the world. Uh, the ancient poet Virgil, in his Aeneid, said this. I'll try to pronounce this. O cursed hunger after gold, why canst thou not influence the hearts of men to perpetrate? What people won't do for gold. Remember, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. For the Christian, though, hungering and thirsting should drive us to Christ as the only one who can satisfy our deepest need. John described Jesus as the bread of life, the living water. Speaking of God, Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Grammatically, uh, the Greek words here are in the, I'm sure you're going to remember this, durative present tense, okay? Uh, Meaning that hungering and thirsting is continual. It goes on, and in this life, increases as it is being satisfied. In other words, the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, they taste and they want more. As the desire grows, the need, the need increases and the craving becomes more intense. Uh, this spiritual hungering and thirsting are not ends in themselves. However, they are a sign of life of the reborn man or woman who has been awakened out of the sleep of spiritual death. You know, the enthusiasm of a new Christian is a good thing. Uh, Christy was brought up in a Southern Baptist church and therefore was saved at an early age. At least she knew she didn't want to go to hell. Okay? I was brought up, on the other hand, in a United Methodist church. And frankly, I didn't have a clue about the gospel until I went to college and was in a, a frat room. I've told that story before. Uh, but when I became saved... Something happened in me. And Christy tells me now that she was off on the dark side at MU, uh, and she was floundering a bit, and she tells me that my enthusiasm actually helped her bring her back. I, uh, I actually went to campus meetings and sang, it only takes a spark to get a fire going, and I, I hopped uh, in a gremlin, which is an old car, which means no traction, in a snowstorm, with a, a chick next to me named Sally Bycraft, now known as Iliff, to a campus crusade conference in Colorado. 
And there they taught us about how to witness. And, and I actually went out and I prayed with a lady to accept Christ as her Savior when I just met him a few days before. Uh, you know, that enthusiasm is great. But as we know, you know, we tend to mature. It tends to kind of go away. And this youthful enthusiasm should not diminish in spirit. Uh, the inward desire to know and follow Christ should not trail off into indifference. Older Christians should not confuse their own apathy with maturity. Spiritual hunger and thirst are an expression of the internal spirit of true children of God. So, when we wake up, are we excited each and every day for what God has in store for us? Do we eagerly look forward to the opportunities He has in store for us? Are we consistently spending time getting to know Him? Praying? Reading God's Word? Memorizing and meditating the Word? Or are we doing something else with that limited resource we call time? There's only so much. This passion of hungering and thirsting after Christ is really well emphasized by the psalmist. In Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory because Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise You. Thus I will bless You while I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise You with joyful lips. When I remember You on my bed, I meditate on You in my night watches because You have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of Your wings, I will rejoice. Your soul follows close behind me. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 42. As the deer... Pants for the water brook. So pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. I have, For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. The psalmist exemplify what it means to long for, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what we as believers should be hungering after on a daily basis, every second, 24-7. This hungering and thirsting needs to be a vital part of our lives that we cannot live without. As we all know, there are many things that distract us, take up our time, our energies, our attention. Some of them very, very good. Some of them not so good. Some of them downright evil. Um, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not easy. In fact, it, it can be very difficult because we have, have to make tough decisions. How to use time wisely. Are we willing to stand as Daniel did 
alone amongst his peers. There are certainly many opportunities for us to be uh, distracted by our flesh and by sin. C.S. Lewis said it this way, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What do we settle for? You know, we can't take ourselves out of the world. We've got to live in the world. But as we live, our lives amongst others should be characterized by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In Philippians 3, Paul says it this way, Yet indeed I go, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Do we count the things of this world as rubbish that we may know Christ? Are we striving to live our lives hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Now, we're not talking here about outward appearance. We're talking about the heart. After what things do our hearts long, hunger, and thirst? Lord willing, as it is, as Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. In the classic book and play, Les Miserables, the main character, Valjean, uh, is released from prison. And on the outside, he finds life just about impossible for a common criminal. Uh, his hard heart is hardened even more. He finds lodging with a kindly bishop. And in that bishop, Valjean senses easy prey. So he steals some silver from the bishop and runs away, but is caught, and the police bring him back to the bishop for questioning. And there, to his amazement, the bishop tells the police that Valjean was supposed to take that silver and other household items. The bishop's actions toward Valjean demonstrate the power of mercy as well as the unexpected ways of God's kingdom. The bishop trusted that his treasure was in heaven. So he took a chance to invest his worldly wealth to alter Valjean's bitter life course. Now, it wasn't his 20 years in prison, but rather this bishop's mercy 
that transformed Valjean from a bitter criminal into a powerful agent of mercy for the poor, the abandoned, and the orphaned. Jesus tells us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Okay, back to the words here. There are two words for mercy in the New Testament, both good words. Paul uses uh, mercy in Philippians and 2 Corinthians to mean comfort in difficult times, compassion of the heart. But that's not the word used here by the Holy Spirit for mercy in the Beatitude. The word for mercy here is eleo, which means inward tenderness or compassion, or excuse me, uh, inward or compassion with outward expression. In other words, it's not just compassionate words and feeling and emotion. It's actually doing something. Why then? Why should we be merciful to someone else? We got busy lives. We got our own troubles. Why should we care about others? Well, let me suggest at least a couple of reasons. The first is the alternative is, shall we say, unpleasant. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And Jesus recounts in this parable how this king was pulled in this slave that owed him a huge debt and was ready to sell him and his wife and his children uh, into, into somebody else's slavery to pay for the debt. But he pleads for mercy and asks for more time to pay off the debt. The king has compassion and he forgives the debt, wipes it out. But then the same servant goes out and finds another servant who owes that first servant a small debt, grabs him by the neck and throws him in jail. But the king finds out about this. And he says, after summoning the first servant, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the king, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now get this. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I think Jesus was trying to tell us something here. Maybe warn us a little bit. Paul says this about those who turn their back on God in Romans 1. God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And then in verse 25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And he goes into detail about their sin and lists the consequential attitudes and, and overt sins, including being unloving and unmerciful. And he ends with, those who practice such things are worthy of death. Well, 
you say, that's unbelievers. I'm saved. What? Me worry? Well, it is true. When one is saved, one does escape the, the eternal punishment for sin we call hell. But did you know that Christians do not escape judgment? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 10, for we Christians must all appear before the judgment or the bema seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christ will judge us. Some will receive more liberality and mercy and generosity than others. As James states in chapter 2, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy is going to be shown to the believer in this judgment in direct proportion to the mercy shown during the believer's life on earth. To be clear, we're saved completely only as a result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for payment for our sins. Yet our enjoyment of heaven and its rewards will be reflected in how we live for Christ here, now. Especially the mercy that we show to others on earth. Verse 13 of that passage ends with, Mercy triumphs over judgment. The believer who has shown mercy will therefore stand unafraid because that mercy will be taken account into account in that judgment. Now, some Christians have asked, why can't God just let it slide? You know, we know He's all love and all mercy. Well, because mercy has a balancing truth. True mercy only has meaning in the context of true justice. Okay? If I, as an offender, have no understanding of the concept of justice, I can't acknowledge my offense and agree that punishment, reproof, or correction is just and deserved. And if I have no recognition of my guilt before a perfectly just God, I have no need for mercy. Valjean knew what he deserved. And that's why the bishop's mercy turned his life around. Now, it's important to define our terms here. I, uh, I, I did make a handout. It's my fault I didn't get it to Patty. I wish this was on here. But very, very helpful way to remember the relationship of these things. Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. A sinner can receive mercy and forgiveness with a clear conscience when he confesses, repents, and makes it right. Why? Only because he understands that he deserves the full punishment for his sin, which Christ took for him on the cross to satisfy the justice of God. And that is God's grace. Mercy is inextricably tied to justice. Mercy is the balance to justice and justice to mercy. To know how to balance these things requires discernment. For criminals, 
The usual argument for justice is so that they'll be taught a lesson, so that they don't offend others again. And that's a valid, uh, valid approach. The bishop indeed took a huge chance on showing mercy to Valjean. And when one is out of balance in either direction, the consequences can be devastating. Justice without mercy is just like truth without love. It's harsh. Mercy without justice, on the other hand, is equally disastrous. It's kind of like parenting. Children of authoritarian parents tend to rebel. Children of permissive parents tend to be spoiled, self-centered brats in teenage or adult bodies. But this is being taught in many churches, some megachurches. The heresy that God is all love and mercy without any justice. And therefore, the cross, the suffering, the payment for those sins is unnecessary and meaningless. Paul makes it clear that the cross has a purpose. In 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I, Paul, am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the utmost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. I think there's at least one more reason, probably others, that we should be merciful to others. And that is because we have all received mercy. Paul understood the purpose of the law and he understood the purpose of justice. He took seriously the admonition of Jesus. You will die in your sins if you believe not that I am He, God Almighty. He repeats, you will die in your sins. Hell is real. He also understood the balance of mercy because he recognized himself as an unworthy recipient. He understood that God's mercy flows to those who repent. 1 John 1, starting at verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The lesson here is that we are all called not just to receive, but to show mercy. There's a scene from a World War II movie, and I think it's Band of Brothers, where the liberation is taking place. And there's a town, uh, I think it's in Holland, uh, where the, the, the folks are out in the streets and they're screaming and they're rejoicing and the Americans are coming through. But part of their rejoicing involves some justice. They drag certain women down to the town square and strip off their clothing and shave their heads. Because everybody knows these are the women who gave comfort or they consorted with the enemy. The scene shifts to a cold, dusty road and a column of soldiers walking down, very tired. 
And up ahead of them is a solitary figure of a woman in rags with a shaved head and a baby. The Americans know what she did. They know that she gave comfort and more to the people who were killing them and their, their comrades. So one of the soldiers decides that he's going to break ranks. And he walks straight up to her. And he lifts and hands her his sea rations. His meal. He nods and goes back to the formation. Do you and I had that same kind of compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. In Hebrews, it tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And not only that, you know, we Christians have a tendency to think we've got it all together. We need to remember, I need to remember, when we come across someone else who is overtaken in sin, but by the grace of God, there go I. Speaking to Corinthian believers who had a similar problem, he said this in chapter, or 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. Of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There is forgiveness for anyone who will come and kneel at the foot of the cross. The merciful have a completely different view of the world than others. They have compassion for even ungodly people who will perish if not rescued. The merciful are gentle to the weak. They're generous to the poor. They forgive their offenders. They lend a hand to the needy. They sympathize with those who are afflicted and they pick up the fallen. I need to now give a caution. I want to hearken back to our series on reaching out. Please do not allow mercy to become self-gratification. Put as simply as I can. It's much more merciful to teach a man to fish than to give him a fish every day simply because it makes us feel better. Is there anything that God cannot do? Now we in the evangelical church are familiar with the attributes of God. We all know that God is omnipotent. And that, the, the definition of that is He can do anything. But there is something He cannot do. The greatest example of mercy is Jesus Christ, God Himself, King of kings, creator of the universe, with the power to give each of us exactly what we deserve, eternal hell. 
But he humbled himself, came down as a man, and lived a sinless life. Then he carried the cross to Golgotha. And even before that, in the garden, he knew full well that even though he was fully God, yet he was fully man. And he was going to bear the full weight, punishment, pain, agony of all the sins of all the people of all time. Why him? Why should a sinless man suffer such agony? Because God cannot deny His own nature, which is perfect justice. Which justice demands payment for sins of the world and, at the same time, perfect love and mercy. It was my sin and yours that put Jesus on the cross. But in the very act of dying, Jesus personified mercy when He cried in His agony from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the end, are we not, all of us, just like Valjean? Let's pray. Father, we give all praise and glory to You. We desire, Lord, to follow You, to follow the example that Christ set for us. We desire, Lord, to know You better and better every day. We desire to do what You've asked us to do. Lord, please, please give us wisdom. Help us to be meek, to be powerful under Your control, to hunger and thirst after Your righteousness, and to show mercy, not just talk about it. Lord, please work in our hearts and give us the Spirit of Christ. We ask all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.